Well, it's that time again, and welcome to another segment of the Grassy Knoll. This will be heard sometime in January 2006, we hope. This is Diz, and we have with us Alan Watt for the uh, third part of a three-part series that I loosely titled The System, because the first two segments, uh, Alan addressed basically what makes the world go around and always has, and that's the economic system. It's all about the money. In this third segment, uh, Alan's pretty deep in knowledge about Freemasonry, which is another system, a belief system, if you will, a spiritual system, if you will, and we're going to direct most of um, our uh, discussion today toward that. Uh, Alan, thanks a lot for being with us today, and again, uh, you know, for the third time here on the Grassy Knoll. Yeah, it's a pleasure, yeah. And uh, what do you have about, what did you say, about a foot of snow cover up there? No, it's about that, uh uh-huh. Well, it's nothing compared. We got to deal with 50 degree temperatures down here. It's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's I, yeah. I know, I know. And most of the people that live by you are down by us anyway. So sure. <laughs> well, it's 20 below last night. So. What? 20 below last night. Are you talking Fahrenheit? Yep. Holy mackerel! How far are you from Hudson Bay? <laughs> well, that's a bit east of me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a long trek with snowshoes. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this: Have your tires ever turned square? Uh, they have, uh, <laughs> yep, they, they have got bumps in them after, after a cold night, yeah. Holy mackerel. I, I, I spent two winters in Vermont. That was enough for me. Mm-hmm. Minus 35 below brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> well, last year, I had uh, 40 below. You beat me. And, but, uh, and 40 below, I, there was hardly anything left in the, in the thermometer to... No! To, to, to pop, so... Um, you're absolutely right. When I went in and looked at the thermometer, I knew we were going to have an all-time low. I went down to this li- old lilac tree outside the house, and I'm looking for the, the, the mercury. I couldn't find it. It never came out of the ball. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Let okay. me ask you this. Do you have any facial hair? Have what? Do you have a mustache or anything? Uh, I, I got a, a bit of a beard. Well, I'll tell you what. I, you know, I always thought it was a joke about snapping off a mustache. Yes. I had one at the time. It's no joke. <laughs> oh, I was... No, that, that could have happened. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, listen, thanks for being with us again, as I said. It's, it's really been enjoyable. About Freemasonry, this is something that, you know, has kind of like two lives. you got the guys down the uh, end of the block who are basically Blue Lodge, I think, first to third degree Masons, and who do good stuff and go, and go bowling and, and have a couple of brews. But they have no idea, do they, um, about what the higher degrees are doing and just what a history that uh, those individuals have had behind them, do they? No, they don't. It's, it's a need-to-know basis. It's like any uh, secret society or, or, or security uh, uh, secret company. It's the same uh, idea. And um, even though they say that everything is contained within the first three degrees, uh, that that's very off-putting. Um, it, it covers the real intentions because it's, it's, a, it's really a selective system. Uh, uh, that's what it's for. It's just to, to bring them in and filter them through, and select the ones who will go higher into the into the other realities, you might call them. Um, if you even have a small newspaper in your area, they will uh, tap you out into a side lodge, another lodge like the, the Black Lodge, for instance, and um, and you won't tell the, the, the Blue Lodge uh, brothers where you're going. Or anything about it, and and from there you'll be coached because you can now create public opinion in your area, so you're useful to the to the system. I've not heard the term black lodge before. What would that refer to? Uh, there are uh, all the, the lodges are color coded. Uh, it's all Pythagorean. Okay. And um, 
Of course, the blue lodge is supposed to be the open lodge, the the blue of the sky, you know. Okay. Where it's more whatever's done there is more more open amongst themselves. E- even though they don't understand the ceremonies that have gone through, they think they do, but as Albert Pike said, they don't. They're intentionally misled. Um, so, so then they go into the Black Lodge, and that's where the secrecy occurs, of course. Now the real oaths begin, um, and you're, you're, you're groomed for much higher positions within in the, the Masonic fraternities. Two quick questions about the degrees and also about the two um, branches of uh, Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. With regard to the Scottish Rite, yeah. some say that because of its geometric um, relationship, uh, that there are lodges beyond 33, that perhaps they go up to 360. Uh, have you found anything that would uh, confirm that? Yes. Uh, really? Yeah, oh yeah. In, in fact, uh, Alistair Crowley, who begun with, in the English Grand Lodge, um, and he joined it, by the way, because he was tapped out of the, uh, the church, the Church of England. He mm-hmm. was at a church service when he was tapped to come into Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. And so that's also where they, they, they select the people within the churches. And he went on eventually, he was groomed by um, the British Secret Service and he worked for them all his life. And his job was to go out into the world and create other sects um, which would attract youngsters and under the form of magic and so on. So he, he founded the, the OTO, oh, okay. but prior to that he was also a member after the English Lodge, he joined the French Lodge and a few other ones. So he, he was a world traveler. Uh, then he founded the OTO. He trained um, the people who eventually went off to found other sects. And this is how they do it, just like the, the monks uh, in the Middle Ages did it. They, they found a monastery, give them a name uh, and a charter, and then they would then spawn off another one with another uh, speciality, you might say. Well, each, lo- each type uh, is, is a special um, lodge. So the OTO was set up by Crowley. Uh, it spun off uh, the two two guys who created the, the Church of Satan, and and also Scientology. With Oran. Yep. Also, so, uh, all of these things are actually pre-Masonic. You see. Have you ever uh, read or or had any exposure to uh, Craig Heimbichner's um, OTO? Yes. Uh huh. All right. And so he was saying this is beyond Freemasonry. So. If we do, in fact, go above 33rd degrees, are we entering, say, the OTO section of Freemasonry that goes into higher degrees? That's one way of doing it. There's other side branches that do the same thing from all other lodges. And it's open in their own books. The OTO will tell you they have 97 degrees. And by the way, Heimbichner's book is Blood on the Altar. I had a little... Uh senior moment there, but uh, he's been on the show twice. I thought he did some pretty good work. Mm-hmm. Also, are you familiar with Jan van Helsing's uh, work, um, Secret Societies and their influence in the 20th century, something to, to that point? Because he talked about there were 99, 99 degree lodges. Are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, they have had them as well. Uh-huh. Uh, would you confirm that that, in fact, is substantive? Uh, I, I think that only was for a short period of time. Um, even in the prior to the French Revolution, they had uh, a select bunch trained to, for revolution, and uh, they had the, the um, most of the parliament that they formed after the revolution was, was, was formed 
or, or staffed by these particular masons at that degree. Yeah, I, I have. They called them. The, they called them the ancients. Yeah. I have his book um, in a PDF format, uh-huh. and um, I've not looked at it for a while. But I was intrigued by the fact that I, I think he might have even said that the the ninety nine lodges existed in the time of Hitler. And of course, there's another whole uh-huh. connection there. Uh, you think uh, for any um, way or purpose that those uh, lodges no longer exist? You, you seem to think that might have been timed out. They, they might have, um, or transformed into another branch, because it, what they're created for really is a special job, a special function for for a particular time period. All right, now I'm going to run this by you too, and I, I'm a little reluctant because it's out there. But you know, we are talking about the occult, and and it is supernatural. Mm-hmm. Van Helsing also said that in those 99, 99 lodges, that demons were uh, at the head of them. Yeah, is this from is this from England? This this guy Van Helsing. You know, the book was a translation, and of course, the, Van, the name Van Helsing. I can I think he might be Dutch. Okay. That's my guess, and. Um, if you don't mind, uh, if, if I can, well, it's kind of hard now, I know. Uh, I'll, in snail mail, I can do this. I can forward you the book that I have in PDF file. Okay, because I've been in touch with a Van Helsing from London over the last uh, couple of months. who's been having a lot of chats with me. Well, would his name be Jan? Jan? Uh, his first name isn't Jan, but it's a very unusual surname. <laughs> well, Van Helsing goes back to Dracula, too. You know? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's got some name. All right, we'll, we'll do that after the fact. I have no problem with that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sending you a CD for you to look at that. I mean, that, that was pretty heavy stuff. Uh, yeah. Going back also to, I said I had two questions. We talked about the Scottish Rite Freemasonry. Uh, what is the, um, the genesis of the, of the, uh, the York Rite? The York Rite supposedly was, was formed... The, the traditional story is that it, it was a, a 17th century or 18th century creation. Um, maybe that's when some of it came into the open because the, um, there was always a noble, noble order in England, that, even from the Knights Templars days, had never disappeared. Mm-hmm. And they always kept the, 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 the old mysteries in, inside nobili- or noble classes, basically, in all countries. And during the coming up to, to the industrial revolution, they needed a middle class to manage uh, the system, and so that's why they came up with with the, the blue lodges and so on for, for for Freemasonry to bring in this new up and coming class who who would still keep order by being taught this particular uh, system of masonry, but it was the lowest order, you know. It was really for for non noble people. I, I've talked to a couple of people. I have been reluctant to talk to my uncle, who's now in his mid-80s, about his lifetime involvement um, with um, uh, the Masons. Yeah. And I remember being maybe eight or nine years old and brought to um, the temple in Hoboken, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I wandered free. And I went into, I guess, what was... What do you call the inner hall where they actually had the, the ceremonies? Yeah, there's lots of temple, really. All right, and I mean, I was there, and I kind of knew I shouldn't be there. I don't really remember much. Um, there was a stage, I can't remember if the floor was checkerboarded or not, and I do remember that a cleaning man came in and I hid under a desk yes. <laughs> until he was done, and I came running out. But, you know, only about a month or two ago, uh, without pressing him, because this is not fair now to talk, you know, to grill him, mm-hmm. but I asked him, I said, you know, I kind of beat around the bush, and I said, what was your involvement? 
and he said, I was only in the Blue Lodge. Yeah. Now, I've had other people tell me, and I respect them, they're not, you know, whatever. I wanted the truth, no matter what. And they said, even if you're in the Blue Lodge, you got to know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, Pike would say differently, what do you think, Alan? Uh, yeah, the whole trick in Freemasonry is never to, to press someone with a superior degree for information. Uh, it's knowing what not to ask, really. So, are you saying that if he didn't want to go there, he didn't have to even know that it was there? Yeah. Uh-huh. All right, because, I mean, he's he's been a, a church-going Methodist. Um, I cannot find anything in his walk or anything that would belie the fact that he was a cult. Honest to goodness. And, Lady Viz, I think you, you would agree with me. I mean, he's a decent, he's a decent individual. Mm-hmm. But, again, you know, he's had a lifelong attachment to it, and yet I don't see anything... Mm-hmm. I only probe him a certain amount, and I think that was only fair. But, yeah. but you know, regardless, um, there is, as as Pike said, the porch members. I guess you would say they would be Blue Lodge, yeah. that are in the community, that do basically some good works, just like the the Freemason Shriners do, mm-hmm. to a certain degree, and, and no pun intended. Yeah. And uh, but yet behind this, there is a very, a very uh, occult uh, depth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's what we're talking about today. Now, uh, two things. One, uh, we had mentioned in a conversation, and I find it very interesting, when a student at the university for which I work, which is Catholic, was looking for the origins of of, of monks, of, of the monastics. Uh, I, I told her, I, I really don't know. I, you know, I, let's do a search. And she came up with the fact that the first monks came out of Egypt. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, I have since found out that the Catholic Church uh, denies that. Mm-hmm. But would you agree, one, that that in fact is true, and what does that bode? And I'm not going to slam the Catholic uh, religion, but I have to admit there's a certain kind of uh, connection between the Vatican and you know Egyptian sun god worship. Yeah. Uh, can we can we say that yes, uh, the monks came out of Egypt? Yes, uh, in the Irish uh, histories. Um, it's well recorded and documented that the first missionaries that brought Christianity to Ireland in the first century and second century AD were actually from Egypt. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason you have the same uh, carvings and so on on the graves, which is sort of like a maze type shape, you know. Uh, these are all Egyptian symbols that, that, that they brought with them. And um, in fact, they, they were up in Ireland for about 600 years. Or six or about six hundred A.D. Uh, and before the, the Catholic Church started to try to penetrate, um, but these Egyptians had had uh, a different form of Christianity. It was a Gnostic type Christianity. Gnostic, okay. But um, and I am curious. I've heard this from other sources as well about the, uh, I guess the uh, attraction to Ireland. Uh, but why? Why, Alan? Why do you think uh, they might have circumvented uh, Britain or what we knew as Britain at that time? And gone to Ireland. Was there something there? Was there anything about the Celtic or or, or uh, Gaelic um, heritage that made I, them I, I more think open? I probably was. There, there was some kind of connection. Um, it, it, it's a, we get a confusing history of Ireland because uh, mm-hmm. uh, they, 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 supposedly there's some um, different group or races actually in Ireland. Um, you, you had the Milesians that came across, uh, the, the darker-haired ones that came through Spain, 
eventually. Um, and um, when you say Milesians, it, 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 it's with a T, for T-I-A-N, uh, and that's where the word military came from, or militia came okay. from. Okay. Because everybody in the tribe was part of their natural militia. And um, then, there, then there was another group came in later who were red-haired, uh, green, blue-eyed type. Um, so you had a mixture of people there, and for, and for some reason, the Egyptian priests uh, thought this important. And now it's possible it was the same two groups who ran even ancient Egypt at one time, the same racial extract, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Because Egypt, uh, we know that the pharaohs, Right, and going back to Sumer, same thing, that the pharaohs wore, and the nobility of Egypt all wore wigs, black wigs, and that they were made from the hair of the, the, the local people. But their own hair was generally a red color, and their eyes were green. Hmm. And they also wore fake uh, beards, you know. Jeez. So, uh, they the, the, the found these in the tombs, uh, and, and they found them too in, in the, one of the big tombs they unearthed at Sumer of a king and queen. Um, so, there's a connection between the red hair, for sure, and the green eyes, yeah. Okay, now, all right, now, I, I don't mean to digress, but you just triggered something. I had read, oh, about a, about a year ago, that there was some kind of archaeological dig in western China, uh -huh. and they came up with a red-haired individual. Do you remember this? Yeah, they, they figured they were around 3000 BC, and, and the, the Chinese do have ancient records of these people coming in to the outskirts of their, of their countries. Um, Were they coming from the uh, west necessarily? It seemed to be there was a, a, mm. a trade route there, and there were semi-nomadic people, but it's thought that they may have brought goods with them. Um, so they may have been traders, it's hard to tell. They have found the graves, many of the graves, on, the, on this particular trade route. And um, they seem to be into a pantheistic form of worship because, uh, especially the women, were, were often tattooed with odd uh, markings that may be celestial uh, orientated. Mm. Um, and they also used um, uh, hashish, you know. All right, so uh, what I mentioned might, in a sense, have some kind of connection through um, some perhaps Euro-Indic... Uh, tribe from way back when? I think so. I, I think India, uh, one of the countries least spoken about, is a big player. Yes, yes. A, a, and always has been, because they were the main traders to Sumer, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 5000 BC. Uh, people forget this all came from the Indic Valley, mm -hmm. and, um, and, the, and the, 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 the actual Indian traders set up uh, a halfway port for all trade goods in the island of Bahrain, off Africa, and uh, that's where the Sumerians had to have to transport all their stuff for, for trade. So the Sumerians primarily traded wool from sheep and, um, and got all their goods, their, their pottery and various other things from India uh, at, at, the, at this particular exchange port. The listener to the show, uh, from, uh, who now lives in Vancouver, um, lives there now, was born in India, mm -hmm. and um, he has said something to me, which is interesting because I, I believe he's right. I don't know on what side this will all come down, 
but we'll look, as we believe in, in Scripture, uh, about um, what might happen in the end days. Uh-huh. He's saying, don't discount India. And, you know, we, we really do. We kind of overlook that giant. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is now we look at it and we say, well, okay, well, they're not really at peace with Pakistan, mm-hmm. Muslims. They're not at peace with China. So, what, you know, does this have any kind of bearing on Jerusalem and, and where do they all fit in? Mm-hmm. But certainly a nation of that size, yeah. uh, we often, well, we definitely overlook it. Uh, do you have any kind of um, take on where India's role might be in the coming decades? Well, what, what is interesting is, is that uh, there are so many authors coming out of Britain right now uh, who are sort of under the guise of exposing the system are also promoting the new age. Okay. Um, Maitreya? Are we talking about Maitreya? Uh, that's only part of, part it. of it. I mean, right. all of this is connected to MI6. All of it. British intelligence. Uh, yes, and all these main authors as well, because MI6 has a department outside the Cotswolds area of London where they train people. Uh, selected individuals to go out into the world to create mysticism and confusion. Did Orwell fit in that at all? Uh, no, he didn't, no. Okay. Uh, he, he was picked right from university from Cambridge to be a, a partial revolutionary um, and a writer, of course, but uh, he wasn't attached to the MI, MI5. Alright, so, so his presence in India really is just uh, coincidental. Yeah, he, he was following his father's footsteps. Okay, okay. Uh, he went to Burma, you know. MI6, uh, would you call that the um, the American version of the CIA, which is supposed to be external, not internal? It's supposed to be, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But people also, also forget that Britain still has the British Secret Service, which has always been there, and they only recruit from aristocracy. And that's above all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so they have all the powers to do whatever they wish, basically. But, um, but these authors are coming out of Britain right now, under the guise of exposing the coming new order, um, are also pushing uh, the new age phenomenon. Now, they started this whole thing back in the 1880s with Madame Blavatsky, yep. mm-hmm. and the idea was to promote a change, a, a sort of phase shift in people's thinking to possibility thinking uh, by saying that they could, uh, by mystifying them again, always give them mystery which intrigues them mm-hmm. and and then maybe they start to fall away from the regular churches and, and start into uh, the, the exploration of theosophical occultism. Now Blavatsky I'm sure was a front person herself mm-hmm. and and the goal really was to to eventually prepare the public for a merging of, of Christianity with Hinduism mm-hmm. for the new age. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we're seeing promoted. Well, it, it, it definitely is. Now, again, going back to India uh, and um, looking at how that's been run almost untouched for thousands of years with its caste system, a, a perfect ordered caste system uh, where if you're born into the lower caste you, you simply accept it and, and you're a slave and that's, your, that's what you do as a slave you, and you don't complain you, no one rebels they, they all accept this caste system um, 
And that apparently is what they want to reintroduce into the new system that they're bringing about in, uh, all over the world. Well, uh, they actually want to bring in a caste system. The Lord of the Rings was, was all about that. Mm -hmm. Under the guise of different pixies, elves, a different order, right down to the, the troll type at the bottom. Um, and even the dead that helped them to win the war, that's <laughs> the general public. Um, th that was promoting the perfect harmony of, of that caste system. Well, I look at the time machine now and I can't look at it ever again the same way. It mm -hmm. came to me, you know, in a movie that had Rod Taylor in it back at the uh, early yeah. 60s. But then when I went and I looked at the book, knowing what H.G. Wells had in mind, and I don't think that he wrote any of his, quote, fiction works mm -hmm. without injecting this somehow, some way. Yeah. And, and I look at the Eloys and the Morlocks, and I'm saying, that seems pretty much to me where everything's going. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I, I think so. I mean, H.G. Wells, just he wasn't a little man who, who, who piped it under a candle or anything. He had a building, a whole building with, with floors of secretaries and typists and even had a printing shop in there, uh, all, supply, all supplied and backed by the British government. Uh, he was a propagandist for the British government. Yeah. And right down to the phrases, the war to end all wars, that was his, you know. Well, you know, when you look at two of his titles, which are out there on the net, people can read them online, they are there extant. I mean, how do you just brush away those two titles, The Open Conspiracy and New World Order. Mm -hmm. I mean, there it is right in your face. Yeah. Um, but at this time, I just want to let everybody know, you listen to the grass, you know, this is this. We have with us Alan Watt. Um, Alan, you, are, the, are the three titles that you have to offer that you uh, embrace in the Cutting Through series, do you treat matters like what we're talking about? I, I do to, to an extent. The, the first two really are written in a completely different style to, to try and wake up people. It's, it's a gestalt type method so that your, your brain has to work as you're reading it. Okay. You're not getting passively downloaded and, and with stuff you'll forget. So, um, yeah, it's a different way of putting certain things across. But I also point out things which should, should be so obvious to them which are not, you know. And, and I'm trying to show them that their survival capabilities have been somehow nullified or, or definitely blunted. And, and uh, this is all by design, of course. So I try to shake them out of it by showing them things which are beyond coincidence, mm -hmm. right down to the language itself, um, which was designed in the 1500s, the, the English language, to contain all of these um, double-speak meanings and so on. Uh, that's no coincidence whatsoever, because with Francis Bacon and John Dee, who helped create it, wrote about it, you know. So, um, I mean, for, I'll give you an example. I mean, the name, the, the word con, Kohan, Cain, all, all mean the same thing. Okay. It's all mean, and King even, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, these are all dialectical variations of the same word. And, and really con and, and can and con mean priest, you see. Mm -hmm. So you, you take even the system itself, which began, uh, we're told the beginning of this phase of the civilization began at Sumer, and you put the two words together and you're con Sumer, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I kid you not. I know, I yep. know, I know. I'm, I'm sitting here going, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, and and yeah. you'll find this all through the English language, all these strange coincidences, right down to 
supposedly if we transformed uh, the language so many times uh, by different peoples, etc., etc., how come that the actual word, the, not the titles of, of, of the sun god of, of ancient uh, Egypt, but the actual, the, the general word for the sun was the sun, you know. <laughs> a, 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 and the man's offspring, male, was also a son, and that was the same in Egypt. How could that be? Um, unless, of course, there are priesthoods literally coming down through the ages who understand this ancient technique of language creation and, and, uh, and know that the key to, to control is the language itself. Uh, your language is no different from a computer. Um, a programmer who programs that computer technically should be able to be given a question and he should know by the, the logic of the computer and the language he's given it the conclusion that that computer must come to. And our language is, is exactly the same way. It's formed the same way. In the books that you've written, uh, do you contain a bibliography at all? Um, I, I do mention different books through it. Mm -hmm. I, once in a while, if someone asks me, I'll put in a, an extended one uh, for them. You know, if okay. they want to go on the paper trail, and that's what it is. It's a paper trail, you know. Well, it's not so much for verification. Mm -hmm. I, I admit there might be something to it, but mm -hmm. um, what, I'm, what I'm given to do, and I have for a long time, is that when I've heard authors uh, and on talk shows, of course, it's always piqued my interest, mm -hmm. and then I've gotten their works, then I like to go and see what they've looked at also. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, if anything else, it, it, it's just uh, it resonates with what that particular author did, and then you have to say, well, the body of evidence kind of proves it, you know, or points to the fact that this is, in fact, true. Uh -huh. And also for those who are, are slow to come to the point that, um, that that this world has been run by conspiracy forever, mm -hmm. to have a body of work um, at your fingertips isn't such a bad thing. Yeah. Now, your books are available if people will send, uh, and, and I, they're $25 a piece for three titles. Is that correct? Yeah. And um, it would be appreciated if you would send, especially people in the States, international money orders correct that's right yeah. all right and they would send them to you alan watt at site 41 box four the town is astaire ontario that's e-s-t-a-i-r-e astaire ontario and if i've got the uh, your your zip correct that would be p3e 4n1 is that right that's right yeah Okay, and we'll, we'll do that a couple of times through there. Um, uh, are you planning to add anything to that? Is, is that pretty much uh, those three uh, titles, uh, volumes or whatever, um, the end of the road? No. Um, I mean, I can go much, much further. For see, I've been teaching a lot of people over the years, uh, mainly by phone. Okay. But um, I, I, I can go much, much, much further, absolutely. But uh, you can't just hand all this to people who, who no. it's been so alien to them that they, they they couldn't go that far because it's so so brand new to them. Um, anyone can talk about the conspiracy; it's so well detailed and out there. Uh, but as, as to as to all of the, the factors that came into play long ago, and 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 are still going on right to the present time and, and into the future. Um, 
a lot of people can't step out of that comfort zone of what they think is reality and go into the next mm-hmm. phase because it will be really bizarre, you know, mm-hmm. if they haven't gone a step-by-step process to understand all of this. Isn't it interesting, though, Alan, that people will go to horror movies, they'll go to sci-fi movies, mm-hmm. they want to be scared by what they consider, you know, fantasy. Yeah. But then when you take a look um, deeply that much of what we've considered science fiction and fantasy is in fact true. And then when people realize that, now we get a different situation. In, in the late 1800s, um, the Rothschilds created a foundation in England to, to encourage authors to write about certain topics which the Rothschilds defined. That wouldn't be Tavistock, would it? Uh, Tavistock eventually became part of it. And uh, so they were trying to start off science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, Tavistock later gave the term to this process where, where you read novels, now it's watching movies, but then it was novels aimed at the young, uh, to make the, the, those young people excited about this, this imaginative future that could be brought forth. And Tavistock calls it predictive programming. Programming, there you go. So, so that's what all fiction really has been for uh, from then on, at least, and maybe even before. But um, this process is well understood. It's, uh, when you're get, getting a lecture on something, you're, you're, you have a little sensor there that, that, that kicks out certain things you, you won't believe or, or disagree with. Uh, but when it comes to fiction, that sensor part is down. And mm-hmm. so you're wide open, you're being downloaded with possibility thinking, as they call it. And, and so something that would sound nuts if you were not uh, brainwashed with this kind of material uh, actually starts to sound quite natural. So we think we're evolving along a natural path. And we don't question why NASA is, is given billions of dollars, and yet it's a highly secretive uh, society. Everybody in NASA has to be 33rd degree, at least, you know, or 32nd. Ooh. And, um, uh, and of course, NASA's main job is, is not just to go out into space, it's also to create satellites and so on that will spy on us for this mm-hmm. great network we're making. But, but they had to get everybody for 50 or 60 years or more to, to grow up thinking that this is a, this is a natural progression. With science fiction writers, which I think, I guess we can start with, I guess, to a certain extent. I mean, you can go back to Bacon talking about, what was the title of his book? About uh, Atlantis, the New Atlantis, right? Uh, he, he wrote, um, uh, actually there's a whole bunch of titles. In fact, I doubt it was just really just one man because he wrote so many books. But the seminal work is the New Atlantis, is it not? He wrote that um, uh, around the same time Moore uh-huh. uh, wrote Utopia. Uh, Utopia. Uh-huh. And they were basically along the same lines that the New Atlantis was to be a, 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 an Atlantis-type colony created in the Atlantic, which was the U.S., of course. Yeah, yeah. And it, it would give it an appearance on the surface of being run by a, a form of uh, uh, input by the public, but in reality, he said it would be run by a secret groups of, of scientists. And he meant social scientists and, and so on, you know. All right, what we well, call psychologists. With, with modern um, science fiction writers, say in the 20th century, and I, I think besides Wells, most of them pop up around 1950 or so, 
and you know, Brad, I think back to Bradbury's 450 uh, Fahrenheit 451. Yep. Uh, Burgess's Clockwork Orange, um, Brave New World by Huxley. Um, do you think that they were, or and Philip K. Dick's books? Mm-hmm. Okay, take whatever you want. You know, uh, Minority Report or Do uh, Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yeah. Do you believe that they were handled? Do you think some of them were handled? Do you think, even if they were or weren't handled, yeah. that they were given a glimpse into what was going to come? Uh, there's no doubt. I mean, Huxley himself uh, gave a, a talk at Berkeley University in 1967. 62, just before he died. 62, yeah. That's right. And, and he actually um, mentioned in that talk that he had been to, to Tavistock many times. He was connected with Tavistock. Mm-hmm. In fact, the only time he became animated is when he talked about uh, how these wires in people's brains uh, could mean that people could be controlled. Uh, that's, that's when he became animated and excited. He thought this was fantastic. Um, so yeah, he was deeply involved with Tavistock, uh, and once again given his material, um, and no doubt by a whole team of people, uh, and he had to basically write the, the story around the data. And also Burgess, then you know that that famous last scene that is emblazoned in all our minds when um, Alex, you know, is uh, is all wired up. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're looking really, probably what's happening today, especially with this unfortunate situation, with this is torture okay or not? I can't even believe this is in the public dialectic. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, they knew that this was all was all possible. In fact, and probably was already developed. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I was reading through um, uh, uh, the, uh, the the biography of um, uh, what did it, Rutherford, who was uh, the world's most famous mathematician in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And before 1920, he, he mentions in his own memoirs, he said, uh, he said, I was working on a project to do with human genes. Now, supposedly at that time, the human gene had never been found yet. Yes. Why would you need a mathematician? Well, what's your answer? The answer is that, that, that whatever we are told is obsolete news. <laughs> well, I, I think we might have said in this series, you know, it spanned a couple of weeks and I might have forgotten, but I remember that one woman saying, you know, if, if, if you hear about it now, it was an R&D 50 years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt in Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, in the last chapter, and again he goes through the virtues, the Masonic virtues, etc. And Bacon himself was the Rosicrucian, which is one of the first uh, to set up uh, the, the Freemasonic right. system. But he talks about in the last chapter about getting into the underground um, laboratories, where the whole complex is, is powered by the energy from something which gave off the light and heat of the sun. And that sounds like nuclear power. Well, and he said, he said next next door to it was a, a a laboratory where they controlled the weather and could create hurricanes and storms <laughs> and earthquakes. You know. And, but you must understand too. And I did this about oh I don't know a couple of weeks ago. I mean, Alan. I mean, there's a paragraph mm-hmm. in Orwell's 1984 that is just jam packed. It, it's almost like. Somebody like who was talking on the phone and had to get off real quick mm-hmm. just said, and this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. And he talked all about that. 
Yeah. I mean, or also about the laboratories, you know, here and there and everywhere about harnessing the sun, which we kind of think might be HARP, mm-hmm. uh, and creating artificial earthquakes yeah. or tsunamis. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he resonates this as well. So, I mean, you know... Uh, yeah, well, well, well you, you think about uh, Vacancy of Atlantis, which was published, uh, it was written in the late 1500s and published in, in 1602. Um, and he's writing about this stuff in 1602. And, and he said uh, another laboratory underground, they're all underground or inside mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, another laboratory said we can take the minutest form of, of plant life, um, add to it the, the life, uh, the basic life forms of other plants. He wasn't talking about uh, splicing <laughs> them. He said, and we can create a brand new species, he said. He said we can do the same with, with any kind of animal life. And he said, we know what the end product will be before we begin, meaning it was not a new, we're not experimenting, they already knew the processes. Holy and, and even breeding special mosquitoes to carry bacterium for, for warfare purposes. I, I, I'm just sitting here thinking about the possibilities, you know, and all I've read, and I, I you know, I, as I said to you, I don't necessarily believe in a hollow earth theory mm-hmm. completely, but something's going on subterranean. <laughs> Oh, they've always, but I mean, even the Egyptians, I mean, Herodotus, who did the, a lot of the Egyptian histories for the Greeks, uh, and who also was, like all of them, he was initiated into the mysteries himself. Uh, he, he, he had tours of the underground uh, facilities under, under Egypt, and some of them uh, went on for miles. And these were all man-made, you know, they were not, it's not a hollow earth, it's simply the best place to hide things from the prying eyes of the public. Yeah. And just as today, I mean, there, I, was, I was going over an old report by the Rand Corporation from the 1960s, and they'd built over 280 underground silos and containment places for the U.S. military then, and they were then demanding that they build at least another 400 to, to house the, the elite, etc., uh, underground. So this has always been the way is, is to hide things underground mm-hmm. or inside mountains. You know? Um, I want to go back to uh, Freemasonry and the time that we have left uh, mm-hmm. to talk about how it is, I would think, the religion of the world and that all the leaders are kind of hooked in. Yeah. And like we like to say kind of, uh, you know, somewhat sarcastically, they all know the handshake. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something I'm keeping my eye toward, and I'm going to ask you your take on this. Um, Denver, Colorado, in the Rocky Mountain West, is very interesting in the United States. Mm-hmm. It seems that there are a lot of things there already, uh, like NORAD and uh, some... Uh, Super Cray computers. Mm-hmm. Also, the CIA recently stated they were moving some functions out there. Um, we all know about Denver Airport, mm-hmm. uh, how how expansive it is for so little traffic, which even my non-conspiratorial pilot buddies will say they can't understand, and they're still building runways. You yeah. talk about the cavernous underground, which, um, if you can believe, uh, Phil Schneider lost his life for uh, talking about. And then you look at, at, at the name of the airport. Its true name is New World Airport. Mm-hmm. It's got a Masonic capstone there. Yeah. And so here's what I'm saying. Are, are we looking at the possibility that if it hits the fan in a nuclear sense, mm-hmm. that everything will be moved out um, to that area and that everybody's going to hunker down out in, let's face it, Colorado has got mines. It's already got everything going for itself. Mm-hmm. Even Orwell talked about boring machines yeah. right back in 48. Yeah. So are we looking at a time when if um, it hits the fan, that when the new world arises, 
my feeling is that Denver probably will be the capital of the American Union, and of course D.C. will be absolutely smoked, and we will lose all connection to our old republic. That's a big of a mouthful, but how do you feel about that, Alan? Yeah, yeah, they, they have plans for every possible contingency. And the U.S. also has another underground base built in Australia. The, 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 um, another branch of government will go to, to try and survive. Now, they're talking about some global disaster which they might bring on themselves. But uh, traditionally, even in ancient times, the elite always had three. They always used the trinity mm-hmm. in, in this mystery religion for everything. And they always had three places. Uh, so that if one was, was destroyed, perhaps the other two would survive. But they never put all their eggs in one basket. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, always have three. Um, well, let's go to um, religions and let's finish up with Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. Is it the global religion? Uh, it is, yes, it is. Uh, I mean, Albert Pike stated it quite uh, emphatically. that Freemasonry is a religion. And it has all, all of the usual things, ritualism, symbolism, um, their own mandate, you know. And uh, it definitely is a religion. It's always been here, I think. It was here long, long before the Rosicrucians uh, came up. Mm-hmm. The noble orders had them. The Knights of the Garter were, were formed in King John's Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, it was all for nobility. It was never given to the common people until they created the middle class to handle the factories. You know. So they had to give them a, a, a semblance of Freemasonry for that purpose. But it's interesting too that when the British troops went into India in the, the 1700s, they, they were flabbergasted to find that uh, mm-hmm. almost every town in India had a Masonic lodge. Well, but I, I, we, you know, I've talked to you about um, taking uh, photos and keeping them for a later date to put up um, with regard to uh, knowing the handshake. And, of course, there is that little peculiar handshake that has taken place mm-hmm. for as long as it has been photographs. Um, and I find that interesting. It would seem to be uh, emblematic of Freemasonry. But, yeah. but if that is the case, and I believe that to be true, yeah. every single government... And we talked before about Arafat, and you can talk about Sharon now, and you can talk about Blair, and, and whatever, Churchill, everybody, United States, mm-hmm. and Saddam too, perhaps. Yeah. They're all in the Brotherhood. Yep. They all know the handshake, and they all play their parts. Yes, they do. Now, given that, I, I just got to ask you, what do you think the fate of Saddam will be, if in fact he's in uh, the Brotherhood? We might get uh, anything at all. They might say he's been put in a prison uh, that no one can visit. Uh, similar to Hess when they attempt to expand our prison um, and we'll never know if he's there or not or they might say that they've executed him we'll never know if they did or not unless it's public and it's, it's got to be I hate to say a, a beheading or an mm-hmm. electrocution or a hanging yeah and then of course everybody will say well that's a double you know, you yeah, yeah. They, they, they literally I mean seeing is believing is like the dog kept telling us and whatever they show us will, will appear to be real and these are masters of deception, you know. They've, Absolutely. They've been at this deceptive game for forever. Um, but, uh, as I say, when Arafat used to, when they were doing the peace treaties with Israel, you would, you would see him and uh, the Prime Minister of Israel going through the five points of Freemasonry 
uh, as they met mm-hmm. each other. You know, as it's hand to hand and then hand to elbow, toe to toe, knee to knee, and, and then hand to round the back, as you'll see. You think they're just hugging each other, and then it's cheek to cheek, you know? Well, a lot of people may not understand that. There is a procedure, or there is a greeting, if you will, a protocol, mm-hmm. which this takes place, and it's on the net. The, off the top of your head, and I have seen that, uh, do mm-hmm. you know anywhere, uh, any website that people could go to to go ahead and take a look at that? Um, well, actually, to see it, I mean, I've got it written down from the old charges here in the first book. You have it in the first book? Yeah, this, this okay. one was... I don't know. It was published around the 1700s, but uh, and, and it's from the it's from the the Cater Coronati Lodge in London. That's their main research lodge for the Masons. Well, isn't it interesting that um, Israel bore down on an Arafat, and they could have killed him if they wanted to. Yeah. But it wasn't it wasn't ordained. Yeah, and he was an Egyptian. They couldn't do it, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you look at the death of Arafat and that strange burial he had, mm-hmm. you didn't see anything. Of a sort of national flag on the coffin, but they had a little Canadian flag there. And the reason for the Canadian flag being there is because the Canadian flag is red and white. Mm. And red and white are the two lands of Israel. The white, that together they formed the hat. There was two parts to the hat. One was white, one was red. And that's why they put that on there to symbolize the ancient Egyptian lineage he belonged to. You said hat? Yeah. Oh, would you uh, expand on that a little bit? Um, the, the Egyptian kings uh, wore a strange looking hat. Okay. And it was a two part hat uh, with a, almost a white dome type thing that stuck on the top of it. Okay. That, but, and each part represented Israel, uh, ancient Egypt. The white part was, was for, for uh, southern Egypt and the red part for north. So mm-hmm. a, a pharaoh who was in charge of the two lands, as they called them, mm-hmm. wore the hat with the red and the white. Mm-hmm. So that's why they snuck that Canadian flag on, uh, that little Canadian flag on Arafat's coffin. It was to, to let all those in the know that he belonged to the old Egyptian lineages. Well, then can we extrapolate since, uh, well, you know, you could say it's a coincidence and it might be. But red there's and white. No, there's no other flag on it. You know. Well, no. I, I, I'm just looking at our flag. I'm thinking Australia's flag. I'm thinking the Union Jack. Yeah. I mean, red and white. You know, you could say that's pretty common colors. But I'm wondering if there is a thread through all of that. Oh, absolutely. The the, the red symbolizes the fire and the blood, of course, for, for the for the ongoing revolution. Always, it's cabalistic as well, and it goes way back to to, to Babylon. Um. Uh, white is, is again the, the pure, the pure ones, mm-hmm. the, the hidden masters, the spirit, you know. Um, and uh, blue, of course, is for the openness of the sky, but it's also the first. But in the Kabbalah, it's the first color that comes from black. That's how they put it. So it's law. So the blue has another meaning, not just the open. It also means under law. And so it's, it's the fire for the revolution, for the agenda and the white for the hidden masters, meaning the spirit of them, the perfection is white, and then the blue is for under law. Well, I'll feed into this to a certain point, because when I look back, you know, I'm really not understanding how we embrace this symbol. Mm-hmm. When you look at the star yep. that is, um, uh, you know, in, in North Korea, mm-hmm. in Russia, yep. in Cuba, yep. and with us, 
And it's like, you know, why did a star have five points? When I look up in the sky, I'm not really seeing a five-pointed no. object. So, okay, so you know where I'm going. So, in other words, we're looking at the star, and we're really looking at a pentagram. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I know. You're looking at, <laughs> at uh, a particular part. There are different points. It depends on the higher sex. In England, they have ones there with, with eight points. And eight is the, the number for new beginnings, but it's also the number for power and money, run by power and money. So the, the five point has its own particular function, and that's the, the exploration, or, or, or the navigators, to call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're they, they still going through a form of revolution. And those countries, remember, England was the first country to have a revolution, and you got the red, white, and blue flag. The next one was, was the U.S., red, white, and blue, and then followed by France, which is red, white, and blue, too. Tell me, well, the English Revolution to which you're referring is which one? Uh, that's the one when they ousted uh, uh, Charles, you know. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we divine anything from the fact that in the United States, which I, I'm, I'm starting to really realize was probably a, a training ground for a new world order? It's, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the old system used um, the exoteric lions, etc., on, on the unicorns, or, 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 which all go back again to ancient India. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so they have the old occultic symbols, the, the lions again from Babylon, the, the lion's gate at Babylon had the two rampant lions standing mm-hmm. over its coat of arms. And somehow that ended up on the British coat of arms. But uh, the U.S. was the first country to, to use the, the, again, occult symbols from Babylon, but in an updated form, and they also used were the first country to build an actually brand new obelisk. Yep. All the other countries from the old world took in obelisks from Egypt and put them in their main capital build uh, centers. To include the Vatican, is that correct? That's right. Uh, well, actually, Constantine's son brought the one over to Rome. <laughs> he was sent off commission to to bring it in. And they, they initially set it up in the circus, and it was a, a much later pope who uh, who uh, had it moved and brought in front of the, the, the window, Peter Square. What, well, should I divine anything from the fact that of all the colonies that could have turned to states, how many there were, that 13 was, what, is that a peculiar number? No, it, it's the number for, for, for uh, 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 the resurrection of Osiris, Egypt. Because of the lost, uh, well, the found 13 parts? Yeah, he was chopped up. Right, and, and into the 14, 13 right. parts, that's right. Typhon. And, and so, technically, the 14th part is, is the, 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 what they call um, the lost word. Well, also the lost word. Well, if that's the case, then, if we're and looking at 13 mm-hmm. colonies that turn to states, yep. isn't, it, isn't it interesting that D.C. would not be a state but the 14th part? That's right. In which we have the obelisk known as the Washington Monument, mm-hmm. which is 555 feet, which is uh, multiplied by 12 inches, equals 6660. Six, six, yeah. mm-hmm. That's not a coincidence, is it? Oh, no, no. These guys <laughs> don't do it. They, they love to, 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 they're professional about numbers and, and occult numbers. But, you know, the thing is, we, I've never really questioned, Alan, before talking to you right this very moment. Why the district would be the district? I mean, what? Why? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I look at the city of London, and we always think of London, but I think you would tell me that within London, there's the city of London. That's right. All right, so he would look at the district, which knows no state, mm-hmm. and very well might have been the 14th part to the 13 states. Yes. All right, so that's... And, of course, D.C., if you were to speak that, instead of just to spell it with the letters, D.C., D.C. in French, um, is 10. Right. And, and 10 is the binary code that's all through masonry uh, and all through language, actually, and, and computers. It's mm-hmm. a binary code. It's a very high... Uh, it's a male and female, you know, as well. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave with a question, which, you know, I, I don't know how you're going to feel, but before we do that, mm-hmm. I want to say that this is the grass, you know, this is this. We have with us Alan Watt. He has um, three books, each $25. Uh, it's a cutting-through series. As he said, it's a companion to uh, many of the interviews and all the interviews he, he has done. You can access them by sending in an international money order, $75. Uh, and you will sell them separately, will you not? Yeah. All right. Okay. So if somebody wants to put their foot in first, they can do that with the first title, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, to Alan Watt at Site 41, Box 4, Estaire, that's E-S-T-A-I-R-E, Ontario, where there's 12 inches of snow, and to this uh, zip code, and that's a postal code, and that is P3E4N1. All right? Now, what I want to ask you about numerology as we uh, leave this uh, the show, 9-11, yeah. is that spiritually slash occult uh, important? There's no doubt. I mean, the old... Um, the old number in, in England for years on the telephone for emergency response uh, when I was growing up was 999 okay. and of course every, it was the old dial phone so when you, you turned that dial it would turn to 666 you see <laughs> okay. and so that was no coincidence so, so yeah when they give you an emergency number it, it's highly highly significant um, and 9 um, uh, is completion and, and, and their, their symbology. Uh, Eleven are the two pillars, Jackson and Boaz, representing fire and water, the male and the female. Uh, so fire, again, is the agenda, uh, the spirit of revolution towards a goal, and, and water, technically, in a sense, is, is, uh, represents the earth as well, the mother, mother matter, that's where the word comes from. And, and tempered by that, in other words, you know, tempered by that, that side of it. So, so yeah, these are all highly significant, and they, 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 never, they never give you anything out there by coincidence. I think not. Listen, Alan, thanks for spending the time that you have with us. I, I think perhaps if you're okay with this, we might want to revisit our discussions later on. Yeah. And thank you for coming on uh, to the Grassy Knoll, and we'll be in touch. And uh, you and all yours have a very safe winter up there. Bye-bye. Bye now.